0: Morning Crosswalk, wherever you are, thanks for joining us. I got to tell you... So much is going on, and I just want to give shout outs to not only all our campuses, but all our Lovewell groups as well. But our campuses are doing some amazing things. Chattanooga, you guys are just incredible with the way that you're supporting. You've got this big thing going on with this building. Will they? Won't they? Who knows? But God is blessing, and your commitment to your community is incredible. So thank you for that. Clinton, what you guys are doing for your kids' ministry last week with those movie nights were so cool. That venue you have is so great. Great. And Redlands. Hey, you you guys. Hey, you guys. Um, Obviously, I'm not here today. You get to experience what the rest of the churches get to experience as well. LA, we know that you guys are doing some really great things. And Woodlands Campus, as you continue to soldier on, we're hoping to see everybody at the Crosswalk Conference if you can make it. Remember, it's October 21 through 23. We're also celebrating our anniversary. So we would love to have you there. Go to our website, check it out, register for the Crosswalk Conference. I think there's going to be a lot of really great learning. There's going to be a lot of amazing worship. And we're also going to really lean into what it means to live in God's momentum. Enough about that. This is not a public service announcement. This is a sermon. So As you know, my name is Tim Gillespie. I'm the lead pastor of Crosswalk Church, and I get to be in a lot of different places all at one time. And the first thing I'd like to do is I really like to thank Patty for his work on this deep faith Series. He was the one who kind of put it together, knowing that I was going to be on a sabbatical, and I'm. Um, it's been fun to preach these last couple of weeks, as well as just be really grateful for the work that he did in putting the series guide together. It's a ton of work, but hopefully you all have been blessed by it. I have been blessed by it as I've continued to um, look at it and work through it as well through this time. Our next series, which will happen after Labor Day weekend, our next series is called Momentum, and that's leading us up to the Crosswalk Conference. The <laughs> cat and I'm just so excited to preach on this particular series. I can't tell you, so we're going to have you jump in. Our series guide is all done for it, ready. You'll have those hopefully in time, and we have a wonderful opportunity. And by the way, if you're online and you're watching this, we want you to know that, um, that you can come and be a part of Crosswalk through the Crosswalk Conference, even if it's just for one week. If you've been watching for a long time, come worship with us, understand what it is that we do, and then uh, celebrate with us as we celebrate. I think this is our 20th year here in this spot. So um, anyway, let's get going. This week, we're studying 1 Timothy in search of deep guidance. And... Um, this is, this is really good because we always need guidance, right? When you do something new, when you get a new job, when you start a new quarter in school or a new semester, depending on where you go to school, that idea of, man, this is overwhelming. Who's going to guide me through this? I've got some people who are, are guiding my son through his first year at college over at Southern. And that's just such a blessing to have some people help walk him through. If you got a new baby, and I know a shout out to Jacob Faulkner and the Faulkner's out there in Chattanooga, as you guys just had a new baby last week. Sometimes we need guide through some mental health issues that we're having, even driving, right? You need somebody to kind of teach you how to drive. When my third child, Isaac, got his permit, he said to me, dad, I don't want you to teach me how to drive, which I was super offended by, but apparently I yell a lot. And so I didn't get to, I I taught him still, but he, we hired a service and they taught him from the beginning. Um, Well, Paul is guiding Timothy Right, And while we're not going to read it, we know that at the end of chapter 2, there was a lot happening, right? And he's he's telling Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, listen, I want you to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Stay away, he says, actually, from ignorant controversies. Be kind, be gentle, right? In the midst of being strong, as he said before. And we could break every single one of these down. But what we understand is that Paul is guiding Timothy in faith in life, and in love. And who guides you in those things, right? We all need guidance through it. Parents, your job to be guiding your kids. Teachers, your job to be guiding your students, right? Administrators, your job to be guiding your employees. Community, our job to be guiding one another, holding one another accountable to these things, right? To faith, life, love, righteousness, peace, all these things that Paul mentioned. It is our responsibility. And I want you to understand something. You are being watched. Not by God. I mean, you're being watched by God, but not not in the same way. That gets a little creepy, right? Not by Santa. You are being watched by your children, by my children. My kids are creepers, right? And when I say that, I mean like if the adults are talking in a room, they're definitely hanging out wanting to hear what the adults are saying. Um, My youngest, not as much as my oldest. She's probably the worst. My middle child, sometimes he cares. Sometimes he doesn't. Depends on what day you're talking about. But our kids are creepers, but they're also sponges. Right? They are sponging and They are taking in every single thing that you're saying, every single thing that you're doing, every decision that you're making, the way that you're talking about people, who you're talking about, the way you think about things. They are listening to all of it, and they are making decisions. They are creating a worldview. They're creating a filter in which they view the world by the way that you behave, the way that you talk. And we should, you know, how you live is how they think they should live as well. It is an awesome responsibility. And what you don't teach intentionally, they will pick up by osmosis. So the question is, how are you guiding them? What do they see from me? What do they see from you? Humility, grace, righteousness, kindness, hope, peace, anger, frustration, judgment, ugliness. I don't know what they see, but you do. And I can tell you this, we can all do better. And this is a trustworthy saying, right? We can all do better. We can all do better in this department. I mean, look at the kids around you in church today and commit to making sure they have the opportunity to do better than we have. When you talk, when you worship, when you eat together, when you disagree, when you agree, when you post, when you choose not to post, when you win, when you lose, do better. I have to do better as well. Pursue righteousness That's what Paul is telling Timothy, righteousness, peace, hope, and love, come on. Paul is guiding Timothy in faith, in life, and in love. And Paul's hope for Timothy is that Timothy does better, right, because Paul coming out of chapter two is guiding and teaching Timothy to simply do better. Paul has been a great mentor, but but Timothy is gonna go out and do it himself soon. And all we can do is give them guidance, when they have to live it. And I know I've been using my kids as an illustration today. I apologize for going too far in it. But but my son is about to get his driver's license. And I remember with every single one of my kids so far, there's that moment they get the driver's license and you hand them the keys and they get in the car and you're not in there with them. And at that point, all you can do is hope that they lean on the wisdom that they've gained from you and from their teachers and from the community. That they'll make good decisions, not just behind the wheel, but when they are away from you. Because now that's just another degree of separation that you haven't had before. So Paul, what he does in chapter 3 is he begins to give Timothy his last words, and he also kind of gives him a warning, right? And when your kids leave, what you try and do is you stuff all, everybody... Like, I know what I'm going to do. Isaac's going to get in the car. I'm going to say, roll the window down. I'm going to say, now remember this and think about this and do this and don't do this. And he's going to start to back up and I'm going to walk with him and be like, no, you got to do this. Come on, don't. That whole thing's going to happen. It's all going to be that way. When I take off on a plane, I try and stuff as many text messages as I can before they force me to turn off my phone. I love you. I love you because I want to know. I want my last words to be words of love and grace and hope. And sometimes a warning I remember my dad's last words as he was dying, when he said, I'm not scared, I have faith, but I sure am gonna miss you. Paul's giving Timothy these last words, but he wants him to understand that these last words come in a context that can be very difficult at times. And so he starts chapter two, verse three, and he says, you should know this Timothy, That in the last days, there will be very, very difficult times. He wants Timothy to mark this, right? Mark this, bookmark this. There's going to be very difficult times. This is a dose of reality. And by the way, it rings true every day, right? The stuff that he's about to say is stuff that we've been saying for all time. This is kind of apocalyptic in its literary bent, right? Apocalyptic literature is always true for every generation, it rings true. And if you've heard people say things of the, about the next generation today, you've heard them say it a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago or, or six thousand years ago. You've heard them say that the next generation is going to fall apart, right? Every generation fears for the next. That's why apocalyptic literature is always so present because it's for this generation and we try and warn the next generation. And and quite honestly, very few of us have a lot of faith in the generation that's coming up afterwards. I mean, we talk about the greatest generation in America, right? That World War II generation. But I guarantee you, when they were 13 years old, their parents were like, we are in trouble. There is no way things are going to go well. And then who knows? You know, they went off to war and they became a completely different kind of generation. We need to have faith in the next generation because they are our fault. (laughs) They picked up our habits from you, from me. They will do better if we did our jobs. They are frustrating, but they're also brilliant. They're talented, they're capable, and they know a bunch of stuff that you don't, right? Have you ever watched your teenage child watch you do something on a computer or on your phone? They want to kill you. It is the same way you look at your parents, depending on how old they are, right? But but Paul says, listen, there's a lot of stuff going on because we're living in the last days, right? And we are living in the last days. And I don't think that's any different today than it was in Paul's time. I believe Paul thought he was living in the last days, and he was. And I think we are living in the last days because these days are noted to be the time between the ascension of Christ to the time that he returns. These are the last days. We think that they're just our last days because there's been so many prior last days to this last day. But we have always been living in them. This is why the book of Revelation is always applicable to us, right? Not just, not just Laodicea, that lukewarm church that we talk about, right? But every single one of those churches is relevant to every single one of us every single day because we are all living in the last days. And so Paul gives a warning to Timothy saying, listen, things are going to be tough in these last days. And he says this, for people will only love themselves and their money they will be boastful and they will be proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider, honestly, nothing sacred 2,000 years ago. This is what he's saying. But human nature is human nature, right? We have the same feelings. Sounds like an angry boomer on Facebook, right? Sounds like what Aristotle said about his generation. Oh, they hang out and they're, they're, they're ne'er-do-wells and they loiter and they you know they probably wear their togas hanging down too far. I don't know what it was, but... This is human nature. But there's a point of this particular text, for people will, only, will love only themselves. People will love only themselves. And this is the crux of the text, right? Because all of it cascades from this concept. When the center of gravity in an individual shifts from God to self, a plethora of sins can spring up. Greed, boasting, abuse, lack of gratitude, right? disobeying parents, holding nothing sacred. When when we become the center of our universe, the only things that are sacred are things that pertain directly to us. So a good check on this is to ask yourself the question, what is sacred in your life? Simple question. And what does it mean to hold something sacred, right? To set it apart. It means it's something different. What do you hold as sacred? Family, faith, worship? the things that you own? And what does holding something sacred do to that thing? Does it lift it up in a way that eclipses God in your life? You know, there's a lot of different ideas about the way we, about what we hold sacred. And every once in a while, somebody will come into a crosswalk church and and be like, that's not sacred what you're doing. Secularism has gone into that. That's not true. Things become sacred as we hold them up to God and we give them to God. Even we become this nation and kingdom of priests because of our proximity to the Holy One, proximity to that which is sacred. But by default, we hold sacred that which is most important to us and this is why being very self-centered or loving only ourselves our ideas or our opinions is such a problem it means that we see ourselves as sacred ourselves as set apart and somehow more important than others now if god wants to if god wants to wants to give you that sacredness that's one thing but when we impute it or import it onto ourselves we have a tendency to see ourselves as more important than others I mean, scripture speaks to the access of the kingdom and the access to grace of God to everyone. Therefore, we are part of the herd of sheep. If you remember what I talked about last week, we are part of the herd of sheep that are all being invited into the pen that God has for us in his kingdom. Being a Christian doesn't make you better. It brings you family. I want to disavow any of you of the idea that believing in Christ makes you better than anyone else. In fact, it does the opposite. It reminds you that you now live with a purpose, with a humility, with a graciousness that is inviting to other people. It's hope. It's an understanding that our lives are in service to Christ. It is dying to self. It is not hating yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is the opposite of making us arrogant, self righteous, haughty, or abusive. What it does is it makes us servants and disciples. When we recognize that, then we, this faith that we believe in becomes that beautiful, blossoms up to that beautiful thing. And the sacredness is the God that we see in one another, not in, in what we think of ourselves as better, Timothy continues, right? He's right in the midst of this. He says, they will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and they will hate what is good. This sounds a lot like the other lists that we have in Romans 1 and in 1 Timothy. But just so you know, those lists were for unbelievers. This list is for those who say they believe. They will be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others and they have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. To think that this sort of person and this sort of ideology inhabits the church of God is frightening. But it's never that clear and obvious, right? Because we would know. But that last phrase, and hate what is good, This phrase needs a little unpacking, I think, because we are talking about those who say they believe. We need to think on it. They probably won't be people who kill, you know, little kittens out in front of you. And hopefully they wouldn't do that at all. That's a horrible illustration. I'm sorry. And if there are children in the room, I definitely apologize. But that's probably not what we're talking about. That's too obvious. It will be those who self-centeredly put their opinions, their value, their ideas, above those of Jesus. And it will feel like they're not listening. They don't have ears to hear. They're not, because their ideology is getting in the way of what God is saying to them. They will hate what is good. But what is called good in Scripture Galatians 5, and 23 lays it out for us, right? But the fruit of the spirit, the things that are good are love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there's not even a law, right? So when we hate what is good, those are the things that scripture speaks of. And weirdly, these things can exist within a church, right? The hatred of those things can exist within a church, And by the way, this is why it is the quality of our hearts that God judges on, not just on our actions. Really hateful and spiteful people can do really great things for all the wrong reasons. In the same way, really great people can sometimes do the wrong things. But their heart was definitely in the right place. There was just something lost in translation. Thank goodness that God is is judging us. God is knowing us by the quality of our heart. Paul continues, and this is getting depressing, I know, right? They will betray their friends. They will be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love, pleasure rather than God. Doesn't really sound like somebody you want to hang out with. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. This is an affirmation of what we've all been talking about, right? Man, they are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. Now, um, these are the victims of false believers and false teachers, and it's really tragic. And then he says something that's particularly about women, and let me give you the context for that, right? He says, such women are forever following new techniques, new teachings, sorry, but they are able, never able to understand the truth. Why women? Because all, all five of these phrases in verses 6 and 7, referred to the women in Ephesus particularly, right? He's talking about a particular group of women who are being led astray by these false teachers. These women are morally weak, emotionally unstable, and forever dabbling with religious novelties. That is not the condition of women. And Paul is not saying that. He's talking about this particular group of women where this particular thing is happening, because Paul can be very personal because he knows the people in Ephesus, right? So I don't ever want anyone to think that Paul hates women because of this phrase. That's not necessarily true. He's speaking to a specific thing. But what he is warning us about are two things, right? False teachers, obviously, those who say they love God but are clearly in the church for nefarious reasons. And secondly, those who are constantly looking so hard for someone who can teach them a certain way that they will follow any sort of novelty that shows up. Right, Our authority doesn't come just from the latest teacher. Our authority comes from Scripture. And Paul just says it. He's on a roll now, right? He says, these teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jembrus opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a counterfeit faith. Right? It's just not, it's not what you want. But then he reminds us that they won't get away with this for long. Someday everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as happened with the previous story of Janice and Jamras. He made a phrase there, right? He said, they have a counterfeit faith. Now, I don't wanna live a counterfeit faith. I think at some points in my life, I probably have, right? Mistaking what I wanted for what God wanted. Putting myself forward for what I thought were good and godly reasons, but really weren't. But when faith leads back to me, it is counterfeit. Because faith is not just faith, faith is faith in. And when we have faith in what ultimately ends up being us, then we've got a problem. And our faith becomes counterfeit. And, and the expenditures and the investments that we make with that counterfeit faith all end up to nothing because it was never real money. It was never real investment in the first place. Obviously, I'm using a metaphor there. When we live a counterfeit faith, not only do we fall very short of what God would have for us, we don't receive the rewards that God has for us either. And so Paul basically says, listen, I want you to understand how. But you, Timothy, he says, certainly know what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance? After this frightening picture of what Timothy would faith, Paul gives him two things to hold on to in these next three verses, four verses, really. He says, Hold on to my example. You know. And he continues it in, in verse 11. He says, You know how much persecution and suffering I've endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium and in Lystra. But oh, the Lord rescued me from all of it. This is personal testimony, right? This is lived experience. I'm working with the Camden Coalition on their um, conference up in Sacramento in September. And, um, and we're sitting there with these panels of experts and these people are brilliant talking about health equity and all this amazing stuff and you know community building and community development and i'm just watching them listening to them and then they've got these people who are lived experience experts so people who have gone through and and an equitable healthcare system, people who have, who have been stuck on food stamps and not able to get the care that they need, homeless and all that. These are the lived experience experts. And man, when they speak, everyone shuts up because they know things that we don't because they have lived those things. And so Paul tells Timothy, look at what I've lived because you need to understand this lived experience. If you're worried about all the rest of this stuff, first of all, look at me. And he says, listen, and yes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We talked about this last week. Expect to suffer. Paul's saying that his life of faith and suffering is not only not uncommon, it is not only not uncommon, but it's predictable. Predictable. That when we have lives of faith, people will be upset about it. When we are faithful to what God is calling us to, people will not understand. When we do the things that God would have us do, people would feel really, well, angry by it. Let's face it. And we got to be careful. Because I believe there are people who fully follow God, really do, and have heard the word of God in their lives, and they do things that I'm not always comfortable with. And, and I know that sounds weird, right? But sometimes God calls people to different things than he's called me to. And you know what? I've made people suffer for what they believe God has called them to do. And that, that's a shame. And I've suffered for what I believe God has called me to do. And that's a shame, too. So we have to balance this, right? And the way we balance that is by being in community and being learners. We learn from one another. That's really important. But he does, Paul does give a warning, right? Evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. This is the reality of it. Sometimes the worst people win. Sometimes they are effective in their deceit, and sometimes, I think, they don't know that they're deceiving. Rather, they think that from their perspectives, they are right, right? This is self-love becoming blinding. And the way that we fight against this is by being honest within community. And I think that's what Paul's, we're trying to remind Timothy to say, like, you gotta be in community with these people. You gotta learn these people. You gotta have accountability with these people. You gotta be able to speak truth into their life. You gotta listen when they speak into your life and be able to discern whether or not what they're saying is true or whether they're being deceived. And that comes from a lot of conversation. But then Paul says, there's another way too. First, you, you gotta be faithful to the things that you've been taught. You know they are true. For you know you can trust those who taught you. So Paul leans into the teaching, right? His personal experience, his lived experience, but also the teaching which has become scripture in our lives. Right? The gospel is full of all the theology that we need to understand how much God loves us and how to be saved. Right? By the way, Paul's writing before the gospels were even written. So he's going off stories, and he's also going off the scriptures from childhood. And he says that you've been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive salvation that comes by trusting Christ Jesus. We can always lean back into the scripture when we need guidance, focus, when we need purpose and understanding. It is not a crutch It is a vast field where we learn, pray, and play, and where we till the soil to become mature Christians, right? So go back to Scripture when you're not sure. Go back to Scripture when you are questioning. Go back to Scripture and see what God has for you. And yeah, I've done it too. I've opened up the Bible and I've been like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what God is trying to teach me. Keep going back. Keep going back. You will not hurt yourself by becoming the kind of disciple that learns. Because, and here's a quote that you know, all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and what makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and it teaches us to do what is right. And what? God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So Paul gives Timothy guidance in two ways. Number one, his example, his lived experience. And number two, scripture. And the gospels, like I said, were either still new or even written after these letters. So when we talk about your life of faith, and really when we talk about your life at all, we gotta ask the question, what is it that gives you guidance? Who are your mentors, who cares about your growth, your maturity, both in faith and in life? Where do you go for wisdom? How do you stop before you speak, before you post, before you jump in? And what gives you pause? How are you still learning? In fact, how are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because the meaning of the word disciple is simply learner. So if we claim to be disciples, it means we are learners and we never stop learning. I wanna write a book, I do so badly. All I can get so far are the series guides. And if you stack them all together, I've written a pretty big book, except for Patty's. He's got a little addendum in there with me on the series. But I've got like this much of a book, right? And by the way, when you write a book, you are learning the whole time. I think about Bill Johnson, who may be in the audience today, who sits in Redlands, who who comes almost every single week. He's written so many books, and I can guarantee you this. Bill does not write a book simply out of experience. He writes a book out of learning and then sharing. My greatest mentors have always been those who never stopped reading, who never stopped writing, who never stopped learning, who never stopped growing. Paul wants this for Timothy, and he wants it for us as well. So here's the question, right? Are you a disciple? Are you a learner? Are you listening to the words that Paul says to Timothy and taking them into your own? Understanding that we live in a difficult world and things are very difficult sometimes, and that there are, there are those, even within the church, that really want to deceive, that really want to tear you in a different direction. There are those that do it out of, out of spitefulness and hate, and there are those who do it out of genuinely being confused because you know what? They hadn't been a disciple before. Because there are certain truths that are so deeply held within the biblical account that when someone says something that sounds new and good, but you know goes against what scripture says, you can go, you know what? That doesn't feel right to me. It's because you are a disciple. Those that bend every time the wind blows are those that aren't sure where their foundation is. And here is your foundation, Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, and coming back for you. This is the gift that we've been given. And this is the gift that Paul reminds Timothy. He is giving him great mentoring, the admonition to continue to be a disciple, to learn, to read, to grow. And it's the same thing that we've been given. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That means you're continually learning. And if you're continually learning, it means you're continually moving closer to him. And that proximity is what makes you sacred. Let's bow our heads. And God of grace, God of mercy, God of love, come near. Lord, may we continue to learn about you in all the different ways that, that there are to learn about you, whether it's lived experience, whether it's mentors, whether it's going back to scripture because it's all God-breathed and good for instruction also to help us understand what we're doing wrong and to help lean us into what is right. So Lord, let us be those people. Let us grow in you, for you, and with you. In your name I pray, amen.